You're listening to the one-on-one with Juan and Only Sports podcast. I'm your host, Theo Juan. Welcome to season two of the podcast. This season, we're going to be looking at the stories and lives of the players, coaches, and personalities that make up the world of Ultimate. Each week, I will talk to a new guest, and we will talk about their journey into Ultimate, what their life in Ultimate looks like, their most memorable games, and a fun rapid-fire segment to end the episode. If you like the podcast, I would love for you to subscribe and drop a review and get the word out about the podcast to others. Your support is truly appreciated. New episodes come out every Tuesday. This episode is brought to you by the Pocket AT. Ever want to have your health-related questions answered whenever you have them? Look no further than the Pocket AT. It's like having an athletic therapist with you 24-7. It's a free informational hub that provides you with everything you need to know about your health, including rehabilitative exercises, advanced sports-specific exercises, proper ways to stretch and foam roll, mobility exercises, nutrition, and a bi-weekly blog that discusses the most commonly asked questions to practitioners. Check out their content on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter at the Pocket AT and on their website at pocketat.com. Now with all that done, let's go. This week's guest is Ari Nelson. Ari has played for an elite level club mixed team, Boston Slow White, and for Team USA's U24 Women's National Team that won gold in 2019. In 2020, Ari was on Denver Molly Brown, an elite women's club team, who focused their season on activism, social justice, and equity efforts in their local community. She played for Slow White for three seasons, where they made it to the semifinals of the USA Ultimate National Championships in 2017, and they took home the silver medal at the World Ultimate Club Championships in 2018. At the collegiate level, Ari has played for the Northeastern Valkyries from 2016 to 2020, and she'll be now be playing for the Open team, the Northeastern Huskies, for the 2020-2021 season. With the Valkyries, she played at the Division I College Championships in 2019, and they made it to the game to go at New England Regionals in 2018. Ari is the founder of Time for the Ultimate Talk, a website which hopes to start the conversation about mental health in the Ultimate community. She is set to start her doctorate program in the fall of 2021 at the University of Denver, studying school psychology. Ari currently resides in Boston, Massachusetts. Here is my interview with Ari Nelson. All right, so I'm here with Ari Nelson. going to mix it up today, figuratively and literally today on the podcast, bringing in another mixed player on the scene. So Ari has played for Boston Slow White who you may have heard of making some noise there at the World Ultimate Club Championships in 2018, coming in second. And she's played for the USA U24 women's team that won gold in 2019. So Ari has had many accomplishments in the Ultimate world. So excited to have her on today all the way from Boston. So Ari, how are you doing today? Not bad, not bad. How about yourself? I'm doing all right. Ready to talk things Ultimate. And also, we'll get to this a bit later, but talking some mental health as well, the website that you founded. So really excited for all of those things that we're going to discuss today. So first off, how did you get into the sport? What's your kind of athletic background? What made you want to pursue ultimate at the club level and kind of give back to the community through your website as well? 
Yeah, sure. So I grew up in New York City for the first 10 years of my life. Didn't really play a lot of sports. I was, you know, kind of a classic city goer. And when I moved to Seattle in 2010, Seattle obviously is a very large ultimate scene and kind of, you know, got into it through like middle school gym, like many others do. And come high school, I went to a school called the Northwest School, which has popped out some pretty big names, um, Khalif El-Salam, Jesse Bolton being a few. And my junior year of high school, I was actually in a relationship with a U-20 Worlds player at the time, Sam Cook, who plays for USC now, or used to play for USC, now plays for UW. And I was playing soccer, I was running track, you know, all the classic sports that kind of like lead into Frisbee. And one day he was, he just said, you know, you should try out for the ultimate Frisbee team. And I was like, yeah, sure. And being a soccer player, you know, I probably fouled like every single one of my teammates at the first tryout, just like. Hopefully not sliding tackles, right? But (laughs) yeah, (laughs) no, but definitely some hip checking, like some stuff that's not really, you know, not really PC. But yeah, my junior year got really into it. Couldn't really throw, but was like pretty fast, knew how to change direction, you know, all the things that you get from playing soccer, playing, running track, et cetera. And then summer in between my junior and senior year of high school, just kind of decided like, this is my sport. I love this community. I love what it feels like to be on the field. And so I played pickup in Seattle every weekend that summer, spent hours working on my throws and came back and captained my senior year was like a center handler for that high school team, which sounds pretty, you know, like not big, but that team, I mean, we, we were competing at the state level. We started competing at the national level for high school the year after I left. Like that was a very good team to play for has again, like kicked out some big names, Josie Gillette being one of them. So just like got really into it. And then went to college. And my first year of college, the coach of my college team, Jason Adams, who has now coached, I think, two U20 cycles and one U24 cycle on the women's side. He, after my freshman year of college, he looked at me and he was like, you could be pretty dang good at this sport. You know, you should stick around and try out for some, some big teams. And obviously, Slow White won 2016 national championships in the US. And so that was my first first pick, first go. And I was 18. I had no idea what I was doing. I still had a big amount of fire in me, you know, definitely still fouled some people at that tryout. But my captain, like who has been my captain for the last three years on slow, he saw something in me that he stuck with. And so I was one out of the three rookies that made that team that year. And yeah, just kind of like progressively got better after playing at that high level for such a long time. So Ari, great stories there of of how you got involved, because I'm wondering, you know, you grew up in New York City, East Coaster, moving out to the West Coast, and then you decided to go back to school out in the East Coast. So were you deciding to play or go to, um, you know, some people, especially now, they choose where they go to school to play Ultimate. So was that something that you did purposefully or you were going more for school? I was going more for school, for sure. Northeastern has a phenomenal program called the Cooperative Learning Program, where every other semester, instead of going to school, we work. So we go, we like get jobs, like full-time, full-paying jobs for six months at a time. 
And so we graduate in five years, but we also graduate with three real jobs on our resume, which I mean, I think without I probably would have struggled more to get into grad school would like have struggled more when looking for jobs in the workforce. And so I chose Northeastern because of that. It did help that coming out of the 2016 college season, they were in the top 25, for sure. But I don't think that that was a big contributing factor. I think I found that out after I had already accepted my admission. We'll talk first about your time uh, with the college team. So as I mentioned there in the bio, uh, you made the game to go at one point and then you actually make nationals in 2019. So can you give a summary of your development as a player, but also your team's development as a program going from a team that had made a game to go at in your tenure, then making nationals, which is obviously the peak of uh, being a college ultimate player there. The spring of 2016 was my senior year of high school and the Northeastern Valkyries had like 10 phenomenal players that all graduated in 2016. So my freshman year, I was coming into a team that had a lot of developing players, had a long history of playing high level games on the backs of these players that were no longer there. And so my freshman year, the team was very much like, all right, we're rebuilding. This is, you know, we're starting from scratch here. My sophomore year, which is 2018, we were relatively competitive. Again, we made it to the game to go at regionals. We got absolutely stomp-throated by Tufts, who was a women's team that made it to nationals that year. A very, very good team. And I think that that year, nobody expected us to do better than that, ourselves included, and especially myself included. I think that like going into regionals that year, I was really excited to get on the field, see what we could do. But I think nationals was a long shot for sure. So making it to the game to go was like, we gave ourselves a pat on the back and walked away from that game happy. 2018, I came into the to the fall season and 2018, the fall of 2018 was the year that we got our invitations to go to U24 tryouts. So... September 2018, I got the letter on my birthday, actually, that I was invited to go to U24 tryouts. I know, shout out, great birthday present. And I also found out in November, the week after tryouts, that I had two broken vertebrae in my back. So I had played that entire club season with Slow White, was on their starting D-line, you know, went through nationals, then like came into the fall college season, was training for U24 tryouts played at U24 tryouts with a broken back, made the team. And when I found out I made the team, I was in a back brace and had just gotten through surgery. So that whole fall season was a lot of developing the team and being able to be on the sideline and like watch, you know, new plays develop. And also we got a really amazing freshman player who like was phenomenal behind the disc. And then come spring, I had this confidence of, Oh, I made a national team with a broken back. Not many people can say that. And just came in guns blazing. Just coming out of recovery, really focused on my recovery, didn't push anything, didn't rush anything. And my first tournament back, we actually won the tournament. So Centex 2019, we took the we took first place at that tournament. And that year, everybody on the team knew we had what it takes. Like we we were so we were gelling. We had players who had been playing together for, that was my third year. So three years at that point, knew each other so well. We had a definite O-line, made a definite D-line. You know, like we knew what we were doing. 
and come regionals, we just, we did it. I mean, we did the dang thing. We just took the field and we beat everybody we needed to beat and we did it in stride and we made it to nationals. And so what was the first thought you had when obviously the culmination of the three years of hard work with your team and your recovery, you make it to the big stage to nationals there. What was the first reaction for you and the team as uh, you've accomplished your goal, right? I have this very vivid memory of this is just this sums it up so well. So we lost to Tufts at regionals, which was a team who in 2018 did not win their own bid to nationals. So they stole a bid from our region. We had three bids. And so we were in contention to take the last bid at that point on Sunday. We play UVM, very close game. Um, we were up like 8-3 at half and ended up being a double game point win. And then we play Harvard, who was a team that was not did not have a bid, was not projected to go to nationals. And the game was a little chippy. You know, we had both men's teams on the sideline. And I was at the front of the stack when one of my teammates threw the goal to win the game. And none of us were keeping track of score or anything, right? And... I just have this image of my teammate catching the disc in the end zone and turning my head and seeing my coach hands up from like the opposite corner of the field, just like running and crying. And I think that that was like the culmination. I mean, I don't think I've cried that hard playing ultimate ever. You know, everybody was on their knees. That day had been so emotional already. It was windy that weekend. Like there were so many different emotions going on. But I think that like that realization of, oh my God, we did it. <laughs> you know, like we knew we could do it and we did it. And then just seeing my coach like tears, hands up, crying from the corner was just like a beautiful moment. Sounds like it could be like its own movie, like a ESPN uh, 30 for 30 or something. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, you go to the big dance, as they say, the national championships. How did that go for you and your team? What were you expecting going into it and, and what were kind of the results from that tournament? Yeah, that was a tough tournament. So 2019 College Nationals was held in Texas. It was very hot. It was very windy. And coming from New England, you know, we've dealt with our fair share of wind, but heat is a, a new beast for us. That whole season, we had been playing with pretty well-defined O&D lines. And we come into this tournament and we switched to upwind downwind lines, which was different. And people played different because of it. And not saying that was the wrong thing to do by any means, but we, we weren't quite prepared for that mental switch, I don't think. And also the heat was brutal. So we came in thinking pre-quarters. We, if we make pre-quarters, we have done our job. You know, we have fulfilled what, what we could do, what we were able to do. And we didn't make pre-quarters. And we had a hard pool. We had OSU. We had UCSB. We had UW. I mean, we had we had teams that were hard to beat. And we ended up coming out of our pool only having beaten UW and gassed. <laughs> I mean, just tired. Our last game of nationals was a brutal upwind-downwind game. I was consistently that weekend on the upwind line being like a thrower for our team, which means that, you know, a lot of the time I had to put all of my energy into jacking a disc upwind and hoping that it got caught. And then if not, like hauling ass down the field to try and stop the downwind point from being over. And 
like one of my last points of our last game, I was crying on the field because I was so tired. Just like, like, like running and just crying. (laughs) And I think that that just about sums up my experience in that tournament. I mean, it was, it was an unreal experience to be at, at college nationals. I had done club nationals. I had done club worlds at that point. And it was a new, a new beast to say the least. And to do it with that, that team was a phenomenal experience. And would you say it's potentially a little bit different as well? Because on the club team, both at club nationals and club worlds, you have your role on the starting line, but perhaps on your college team where a lot of those players don't have the same experience, don't have the same club experience, you're asked to carry a much heavier load. Would you say that also yes. uh, led to perhaps the crying while running on the field kind of thing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And my persona for my college team was always different than my persona for my club team. You know, even my last year on Slow White, I was on the starting O-line. So different switch, had different responsibilities. But I still had like five things that I had to do really well. And on my college team, it was just go do your best at everything and see what happens. And that was that was hard for me mentally. It really was. And that's something that if you follow any college ultimate there in the audience, that's something you notice a lot with players who come from a club background, especially when they play on a high level, like USA ultimate national championship level, like club team where they're consistently going to club nationals and you play in college, you're going to be playing like more than, you know, 60, 70% of your team's points. And that can take a toll throughout a season, right, Ari? Agreed. A hundred percent agreed. So with that being said in 2019, being able to go to nationals with the Valkyries, uh, obviously 2020, no season. For this upcoming college season, you're set to actually play with the open team, the Northeastern Huskies. So can you tell the audience what led you to switch uh, teams and pursue that endeavor? Yeah, absolutely. So, and I'm sure we will talk about this more in later in this podcast, but I had a, t- a tough 2020, like many people do. And I, during quarantine, you know, was for the first time in a really long time without Ultimate Frisbee, like everyone. And I think that I came to realize a lot of things, (laughs) one being that I relied really, really heavily on my, like my personal identity was tied really, really heavily to how good I was at Ultimate. And I didn't love that. And I also, in June, July of 2020, had a really, really tough couple of months, did a stint at an inpatient rehabilitation program for mental health. And came out with a lot of new realizations, one being that the pressure and the social norms and the way that a lot of individuals in the college women's scene in particular go about spirit of the game and what it means to be a good teammate and how to interact with people on the field was really detrimental to me as a person, as a player. It was detrimental to my mental health. It gave me a lot of negative messages about who I was, about how my, you know, diagnoses of mental health affected me as a person, as a player. And again, we can go more into this later. But so coming out of rehab, I was cautious about what ultimate scenes I was going to get myself into. And what I ended up finding within the, you know, couple months coming out of rehab was that the men's team at Northeastern, who I live with five men's players, we live in a house together. And I mean, they, they were above and beyond my support system, truly. They really just, 
they they did it. They like they checked every box for how to support somebody coming out of rehab, how to give somebody space to make mistakes, how to, you know, love a person with a conglomerate of all of their parts, not just the parts that you want them to have, but truly just who they are. And I just made a decision that that was the community I wanted to be a part of coming out of what I had been through in 2020. And, uh, you know, I am privileged enough to be good enough to play for that team. You know, not, not a lot of women's players would be able to like confidently take the field with a men's team based on social norms, based on gender norms, based on athletic ability, whatever it is. And I just decided that I wanted to play with my friends. (laughs) So that that's what it is. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that. And, all the vulnerability you shared, and I'm sure we'll get to some more uh, heavy topics there as well as we talk about uh, the website and things like that. But something I've always been curious about is the Boston mix scene. Because if uh, you're listening to the audience and you've watched any club nationals, you're going to see not one, not two, but three Boston mix teams at nationals, right? You got Slow White, you got Snake Country, and you got Wildcard. But along with that, at the regional level, you got teams like League of Shadows, Chaotic Good. There's other teams I could list as well. So when you were choosing your club team and you were an eight, a young, wide-eyed Ari Nelson, 18-year-old, <laughs> you chose to play for Slow White. Can you explain why you did that? Were you trying out for other mixed teams as well? Because there were other successful mixed teams there. I don't believe Snake Country existed at the time, but Wildcard was there. So what made you choose Slow White and and Mixed in general instead of playing for like a Brute Squad, for example? To be perfectly honest, I didn't think I could make Brute Squad when I was 18. So I kind of just like pushed that off to the side. And so Boston Slow White had won nationals in 2016. And watching their footage from that 2016 nationals run, I was, I mean, I, again, wide-eyed Ari Nelson, 18. I was like, head over heels for the way they played ultimate. I mean, they had women that were just like absolutely dominating the field. Vicky Chang, Lexi Zalk, Hannah Berenes, Olivia Hampton, like these names that now play professional ultimate that are, you know, have been in contention for world's team after world's team, just like these like phenomenal athletes. And I was just so excited for the possibility of playing with them and I mean the team did above and beyond what I expected they would do in terms of you know letting their women shine and I had never once been on the field with that team and thought oh I'm not getting respected as an athlete which I think is a lot of what women who play low to mid-level mixed experience I just felt that vibe from the first tryout I went to with them and I also recognized and continued to recognize that they were excited to have me a part of their team. And that was something that maybe at other tryouts I didn't experience as much or, you know, other tryouts wanted me to fit into their system and Slow White was more of a, we're creating a new system for, you know, each year. It just, it was a vibe. It was a vibe check for me, for sure. And I made family on that team. I made lifelong friends. I made people who have supported me for, you know, the five years that I've known them now. But I think a a mix of national championship winners, team who knew how to use their non-male athletes, and just like a general excitement was what really brought me to that team. And uh, how was that experience for you, being able to play club nationals as an 18-year-old? You're doing something that not a lot of people get a chance to do, which is play club nationals before college nationals 
because usually it's probably the other way around. So what was it like playing your first club nationals there? Were you uh, nervous or were you uh, just uh, excited as you said you were earlier just to be on the team? Oh my God, so excited. I was so excited. I like, that was probably my favorite tournament I have ever played in. I mean, we made it to the semis. We played mixtape. We lost to mixtape in the semifinal game. There is a <laughs> a video of Lonnie who played, I'm, I'm not sure if she's still playing for mixtape, but she played for mixtape for a long time. I was guarding her for most of that game and front of the end zone, she just like turned me around 360 degrees for a goal. Just like full, you know, I just lost her and was looking the other direction when she was catching the goal. And there's a really funny video of the ESPN commentator just putting it on repeat and looping it around. And the best is he goes, oh, where'd she go? <laughs> like, like zoomed in on me, you know, just looking the other direction. And that's something that I think now I would probably, you know, cringe thinking about. And looking back, like, I was on the national stage at 18 years old. I didn't really know how to play defense. And I was having the time of my life. The absolute time of my life. It was an unreal experience that I don't think I wouldn't trade the world for, honestly. Yeah, it sounds like you had a you had a great time. And uh, within Boston there, what's the, you said the vibe uh, of your team there. What does Boston do so well, basically, to be able to have all these mixed teams that are so successful? Like, is it the water that you're drinking out there? Like, what is happening <laughs> that's causing Boston to be so successful? Because we see other cities like Seattle, they got BFG, they got mixtape. But if you look at other cities around the country, they're not producing two, three teams going to a national championship in one division, maybe in all the divisions, but not one. Right. Yeah. So if you look at Boston as a city um, and kind of the surrounding areas, there are, I think, over 20 colleges and so I think what ends up happening, and these colleges are, again, like not every college spews out phenomenal Frisbee players, but a lot of these teams, Wildcard was a Dartmouth alumni team to start, League of Shadows was an MIT alumni team to start. And so a lot of these teams, they become teams based on people's college experiences. And so when you look at Seattle, for example, right, you have UW, you have Western Washington University, you have Seattle University. And you have Oregon. And those are typically the schools that kind of feed into that club scene. Um, so people go through their years in college and either start playing while they're in college or come back and play while they're in after college. And when you look at Boston, I mean, just Boston alone, right? You have Northeastern, Boston University, Boston College, MIT, Harvard. You have like six schools within Boston proper. And if you go outside of that, you know, you have Dartmouth, you have Brown, like there's just so many schools and UMass Amherst and whatever. And so what ends up happening is the schools that do pop out these amazing players like Dartmouth, for example, right? If you think of like the Dartmouth contingent at Brute Squad, but schools that also just have pretty substantial Frisbee programs, those players who stick around in Boston, they typically create club teams. And so that's why there are so many in Boston. And to answer your question about why there are so many good ones, I'm not super sure, honestly. <laughs> I think part of it is that if you look at Slow or Wildcard or Snake Country, a lot of the older players on those teams are alumni of Brute Squad and Ironside. And so when those teams, you know, when they retire from women's or men's, they come down to mixed. 
And that like creates a funnel effect of like phenomenal players coming to play mixed with their friends and then those teams being very successful. And you mentioned something that a lot of mixed players in the audience would definitely understand is the use of women on their teams. And so is that something that your team, Slow White, has actively done to help with that? And what are you hoping that other mixed teams can do moving forward to create that balance? Because we've seen like an article about it, like the disproportionate amount of touches for women's uh, or female identifying players. And also uh, one of the arguments that would be made is while most teams have a center O-line handler that's a male. So that's why the touches are disproportionate. I'm sure you've heard that argument. Always, yeah. So what would you say to sort of help progress mixed uh, to be a division that people want to play in? Not that people don't want to play in mixed, but as you kind of mentioned with the Ironside and Boot Squad players then funneling into mixed, that could potentially happen as well. So what would be your suggestions for the mixed game uh, if Ari could uh, could choose everything that could improve in the mixed game there? Honestly, get rid of the idea that your that your star player is a man. <laughs> That's the best I could say. And truly, like the argument of like, oh, our center handler is male. I was the center handler for Slow White last year, and it was phenomenal. It was so much fun. And there were, I mean, and I didn't have that big of a role, but my role was just to distribute the disc, right? So if you looked at touches I had at nationals, it was equal to my male teammates. Years before playing on slow, Vicky Chang was the center handler for slow before she retired. And then on D-line, almost all of our plays revolved around a female identifying cutter. So, right. So if you have, like we had Miles Montgomery Butler, who played for Ironside for a really long time. He was on our team in 2017 and he was our center D-line handler. But then we had like these phenomenal female cutters that would just go out and absolutely dominate the space. And I think like a very common excuse that people don't do that is like, well, if we give women the space, you know, men are going to clog it, right? Like women can't go deep and mix because then men are just going to catch up to them or whatever that excuse is. But there are so many ways to go to differentiate that and to figure out how to create space for women where maybe your male cutters stand in the front of the stack, or maybe you just put all your females down, like, you know, downfield and let them dominate the space. Every excuse that I've heard in the book about why men get more touches is just a team not recognizing that there are different ways to play ultimate where we can create space for women. And one of the arguments I've heard for the positive side of using women in uh, mixed is the fact that the successful teams that do well are the ones that are able to carve out roles for both genders in mixed, right? There is data to support this claim that the top mixed teams are the ones who are spreading out their touches. And I think it's also potentially related to teams that aren't pickup teams as well that focus on building these systems in practice and in tournaments. Would you say that's all kind of true things that you've noticed at your time in the mixed game? Absolutely. The two teams that come to mind when you say that is AMP, Philadelphia AMP. I mean, Anna Thompson, an absolute unreal player, also like a very good friend of mine, just so phenomenal at dominating space, dominating throws, making herself known that that's her space and she's there to take it. And along with, you know, all of those other people that play for AMP, Raha, Linda Morse, like these players that 
they take up the space that they know they deserve. And that team, they've played with them for so long that that team has a structure that knows how, when, and where to let those players shine. And they use their male identifying players also very, very beautifully. And then Dragon Thrust, Minneapolis or Minnesota Dragon Thrust. I mean, they... Like Erica Bacon is the name I, I think about. Yeah, Erica Bacon, Sarah Mextroth, and these players that I played in college. I mean, their um, University of Minnesota team has put a decent amount of players on that Dragon Thrust team. And they, again, just that team has created a structure that upholds the idea that everybody has the same right to that space. For sure. And we're going to transition out of uh, talking about your journey and move a little bit more into daily life there. But my last question would be, you gave a, a shout out earlier to your coach. Is there anyone else you want to give a shout out to that supported you both on your mental health journey, but also your ultimate journey? I know uh, we could spend probably a few hours doing this, but uh, give a give a couple shout outs and uh, and we'll we'll go from there. Yes, absolutely. So there are two that are really poignant in my mind. One, Khalif El-Salam, big name and ultimate, has been kind of a role model of mine for years. He went to my high school before I got there and people talked about him a lot as I was up and coming in ultimate in high school. He has just, he checks in on me a lot. He gasses me up when I feel a little bit of like imposter syndrome with Frisbee and he's got the the right attitude towards making me feel like I deserve to be in any space that I'm in. And the second one is Olivia Hampton, who was a teammate of mine on Slow White. She played for Boston College. My freshman year of college was her fifth year of college. So we met at college regionals. I was absolutely terrified of her. And we just became very, very close friends, close teammates. And to this day, you know, I I really can't imagine my ultimate Frisbee journey or life journey for the past couple of years without her. And then general shout out, like time for the ultimate talk, which is the organization that I created, the people in that organization, Kellen Gibney, Emily Willingham, Lane Shearer, Kelly Rusin. These are people that have had my back since day one of coming out of rehab and rejoining the ultimate community and have made my life a lot more enjoyable, honestly. (laughs) So those are my shout outs. For sure, for sure. And so appreciate you sharing all that. Ari, we're going to move to segment two. We're going to talk about daily life. Let's focus on first, as you mentioned about rehab and coming out of that, have you been training for Ultimate? Like, what's your view now of Ultimate, uh, its place in your life in terms of uh, getting ready for the season? At the time of this recording, we're hearing news that USA Ultimate planning to run a a season, right? So vaccines are happening more in the States than they are in Canada, truthfully. So uh, yeah, things are happening out there. And so yeah, what's your view right now on Ultimate and its place in your life? I know you shared a little bit about how Things were a bit difficult back in the summer of 2020. So what have you been doing with Ultimate, if anything at all? I am a coach for Morel Performance and Functional Performance Training, um, MPFPT. And I have been a coach for the last eight months. I have been a part of that program training by myself and with Tim Morel for the past two years now. And so I have kept up a pretty steady and regimented training routine. A lot of it is just because if I don't work out, I go a little, a little wild. You know, it's really good for my mental health to keep a routine like that. But also when return to play is possible, I would love to be as ready as I can be. 
So I have been keeping up a pretty solid training routine in, in terms of being able to get back on the field. In terms of like finding my place in the ultimate community, I think that I have just switched my lens a little bit to look at being a part of a team as a privilege rather than a right. I think that a lot of people in the ultimate community, and this is something that Lane Shearer, again, shout out time for the ultimate talk. She brought up very early on in our discussions of creating our organization and trying to figure out what kind of information we wanted to give to the ultimate community. And she said, a lot of people forget that it is a privilege to be on a team. And if that privilege is, you know, not appreciated or respected, they don't need to be on that team anymore. Um, And she was specifically talking about people who, you know, don't respect pronouns, don't respect racial inequity, don't respect, you know, like don't respect human beings that are on that team. But I think that taking away from that, like, I want to be on a team where people respect the privilege and are excited to be there all the time and don't treat their teammates like an object that's going to go win them games, which is something that I have experienced in the past. So moving forward, I think super stoked to finish out the next three months playing for the men's team at Northeastern in whatever capacity. And then moving forward, Molly Brown is my destination, Denver Molly Brown. I was a part of their activism team. I'm not quite sure what tryouts are going to look like for them, but that team has showed a lot of love and care and respect and empathy and appreciation and want and desire to be better and get better off the field. Obviously, they are a powerhouse on the field, so that comes with the territory, but that is a team that I want to be a part of. That is a team that every player recognizes how amazing it is that they're there and is excited to be there and also recognizes that we got work to do. Those are uh, very good points there because, as you mentioned, it's uh, often we think that we deserve to play the sport at the high level or or be able to go to these tournaments, but it takes a lot of uh, resources and privilege, as you mentioned, to be able to do that. And and that's, uh, yeah, really good stuff and uh, leaving the audience a lot to think about as well there, Ari. (laughs) And so, Ari, for this part of the daily life, I want to focus a little bit more on the mental health journey that you've been on, if you're okay to share, as well as the website that you've uh, created. So can you share a little bit about uh, your heart and desire for that website and the organization and what you hope to accomplish through that and what your day-to-day workings with that organization look like while balancing school and other priorities? Time for the ultimate talk. Um, if you want, I'm not going to go like too in-depth of to like what we you know, aspire to do in terms of like an organizational standpoint. So if you want to know more, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, we have a website. To reiterate what I said before, I think coming out of 30 days intensive rehabilitation for mental health and a lot of self-reflection on how I got there, why I was there, what needed to change in order for me to stay away from that space again, I realized that Ultimate Frisbee as a sport was one of the communities of mine and probably the biggest community of mine. I mean, I I have very little friends that don't play Ultimate, as a lot of Ultimate players do. It was a huge community that was not talking about mental health. And when you don't talk about it, you don't take the time to educate yourself. You reiterate stigma and biases that it's abnormal to struggle with your mental health, which is not true. And, And I also realized that a lot of the messages that I had gotten over the years of you're too intense, you're not spirited enough, you talk too aggressively are all things that can be attributed to 
struggles that I've had with mental health. And I wrote an article for Ulti World a cup uh, a while ago now, so in August. And in the article, I talked about how when you have been through trauma that I've been through or you hold the diagnoses that I have, none of these are your fault, right? Like I don't fault myself for having brain chemistry that works a certain way or for the awful wrongdoings that somebody else has done onto me. And yet on the ultimate field, when I am triggered or have too much going on in my head to be able to respond nicely to a foul call and nice is so subjective, right? Like, and this is another thing, like in the the women college game, it's like, you need to smile. You need to talk with a, a quiet tone. Just hearing me talk, you can probably tell that that's not how I react. It's not really in, you know, it's not really like in my vocabulary to react that way. Yeah. You're honest though. I love it. <laughs> and just like so many messages that I got that I internalized as me being a negative part of the ultimate community. And almost every single one of those things were either symptoms or could be attributed to my diagnoses or trauma. And I was sick of it. (laughs) Honestly, I came out of rehab and was like, I cannot be on a team that does not educate themselves on what it means to have these diagnoses, what symptomology comes from it, how to accept people for where they're at rather than ask them to be what you want them to be, right? That's where Time for the Ultimate Talk was born. And what we have done is we've created a group that has been through similar and different struggles within the Ultimate community, but all within the same realm of mental health, trauma, toxic team environments, like all of these experiences that we've had. And we decided it's time to start talking about this. (laughs) Really, like ultimate community, open up your ears because it's time to start talking about this stuff. We put on three teach-ins in September through October for the whole ultimate community. Um, We reached about 350 people through those teach-ins. I mean, they received positive feedback and they were are still talked about. Some of the lessons that we gave are still used by people. And right now we are working with college teams. So we recognize that one, a lot of sexual trauma comes out of college and unfortunately, right? And also a lot of college teams are captained by people who are 20 and 21 and don't really know how to talk about it themselves are coached by people. Some, some are coached by people who are super passionate about the team and the sport. Some are, you know, coaches where the team really needed a coach and they just reached out to any who, how, and was like, please come coach us. And nobody was talking about it. And that's the butt of ultimate, right? You look at these club players and some of them played in high school, but a lot of them just got really good in college. And so we decided you know what? We have information to talk about. We have awareness to shed. We have biases and stigma to break down. Please come, come pay us to work with your team, basically. (laughs) So. Good stuff there, Ari, because college, as many will know, some will say is the best time of your life, but for some, it might not be. Agreed. But I would say for everyone involved in college, it is a time of formation of opinions, of uh, life goals, life thought, emotional health, all these different things I could rattle off. College is a big formation time for that. So it's great that you're actually trying to reach that generation through what you're doing. But something you noted that I find very interesting is the idea, what you said about the women's game, 
about how you're supposed to behave. And I, I think about that both for women and the men's game, because for the men's game, in my experience, there's going to be this aspect of, oh, you can't share how you feel because then you're you're a sissy or whatever that is. Like, you're not uh, man enough. And, and those things come out if you share your emotions or if you share your struggle. And then for you, uh, conversely, there's this idea of gender roles and just gender norms. Women are supposed to be more, uh, uh, as you said, like, I don't want to use the word passive, but they're not supposed to like be really like showing their opinion. And if they are, then they're not being what a college women's player or club women's player should be like. So would you say that's a lot of the work that has to be done too, is educating people about the gender stereotypes that exist both in the men's and women's game. Like there are separate issues and they're going to rear their heads in different ways, but both of them need to be educated. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I also, I think that, so the way that we go about our college teachings is we do typically two teachings with a team. Um, so we'll do a teaching with their leadership where we look more at the leadership structure and how like the responsibilities trickle down. And then we'll do a teaching with the full team where we bring the leadership and all of the teammates together and we do a teaching with them all. And for each of those, people fill out Google Forms with information that we ask of them so that we can formulate our agenda and our curriculum for those teachings. And we have now worked with, let me think, three women's programs and two men's programs. And we are at varying degrees of, you know, we've either finished with all of our teachings or we've only done one or whatever. And what we have seen a lot of is on the women's side, we get a lot of clicks and a lot of judgment is what we get from there, which is, you know, if you are one, if you have one type of personality, you are going to fit more in with this group of people. And then naturally the team divides. And then also there's a lot of judgment in women's teams of what is the right way to be a teammate, how to control your emotions, how to express yourself, how to give or receive feedback. And what we have learned is that a lot of the time when we ask teams, who is your favorite teammate? Describe what that person is. We get things like enthusiastic, positive, reliable, dependable, and nice. And I can tell you right now, as somebody who has depression, anxiety, and PTSD, I cannot be all five of those things at once ever, (laughs) ever, right? And that's something that is normal. People with depression, anxiety cannot be positive all the time, cannot be enthusiastic all the time, cannot hold themselves to a standard where they can control the way that their emotions come out all the time. And so I can almost guarantee that anybody on my college team, if you ask them, they would never say that I was their favorite teammate because these are the standards that we uphold as to how to be a good teammate. And it just doesn't include people who struggle with mental health. It just doesn't. Then on the men's side, we get loud, assertive, passionate. And then we also get the like reliable, dependable type situation, right? And these are, again, like you said, gender normative. So what happens if you have a rather, you know, quiet or passive teammate who isn't loud, rah, rah all the time, they're probably not going to fit into that ideal teammate, quote unquote. And the two don't really align with each other at all, right? Those, Those characteristics are so different from each other. And so what we try and do with teams is we say, look, you're dealing with people 
on this field. You're not dealing with players or athletes. You're dealing with human beings and human beings are different and they have different personalities, traits, and they look at things so subjectively, right? Spirit of the game, subjective, not objective. And yet you uphold this standard of how to be a good teammate instead of just recognizing that everyone's trying their best and everyone's going to be the best teammate that they can be at any given minute. And you should accept that rather than try and change it. I mean, Ari, you're just like preaching a whole uh, TED talk here. I love it. Love it. One of the big points to take out of it is to meet people where they're at and that people necessarily aren't going to fit into the perfect bow of what a, a teammate, for example, looks like. And yeah, that that's like all good stuff. I think a lot to take away if you're listening. Uh, if you want to learn more, if you struggle with mental health in any way, shape, or form, I would, and, and you play Ultimate, I mean, why wouldn't you check out this website? You get to learn some more information. And so on this website, are there resources, like videos? Like what what does that look like for someone who's interested? I'll make sure to plug all the stuff that you mentioned in the show description. So if you want to check that out, just hit the show description. And uh, it will all be there. So Ari, what are some things that you offer in terms of uh, your team, your organization for the Ultimate Community? Yeah, so right now we are specifically focusing our energy on college teams, um, like I said before. So if you're a part of a college team and you want to do something with us, like please don't hesitate to reach out. Our website has all of our contact information. We did huge teach-ins for the whole Ultimate Community earlier in the summer in 2020. And we are probably going to do another set of those in 2021. And like on our website, you'll find mental health resources, you'll find our bios, you'll find our mission, you'll find some information that we have taught in past teachings that are that is there. And then moving forward, we are actually working on developing a handbook. And this is top secret information. So I'm letting it I'm letting it go on your podcast. Well, we appreciate that. (laughs) working, meaning we have a very rough draft of a table of contents and nobody has looked at it in months. (laughs) But we are hoping to develop a handbook that would be distributed to club teams, college teams, just teams in general with information and anecdotal stories from other people who have struggled and statistics and just like a how to be a mental health and trauma aware team 101. Yeah, I mean, I honestly could go on and on about this topic as well. Even just this idea of the term, um, some people who have been in the mental health space understand this term like a safe person, like being a safe person that uh, someone with mental health can talk to. That's like something that I'm sure you'll cover in the handbook and Mm. talk about how to be a safe person. And so, yeah, if you're someone who uh, gets confided in by a a teammate or someone, if you're in leadership, uh, just take the time to listen. That's probably the biggest thing that I could say. Take time to listen and just understand that I could go. Uh, I could go do my own TED talk here, yeah. Ari. But <laughs> as I've read books on this topic and worked through this on my own, like uh, and with people in, in my immediate community, our past defines a lot of like how we view the world. And so when we start to understand like how things that we've experienced or done or have been done to us impact our future. And, and sort of how we outlook things, uh, that could change a lot for people who maybe don't think about that. And so when someone reacts in a certain way, as you mentioned, uh, for female players, loud and aggressively, or for male identifying players, passive and quiet, maybe something happened in their in their past experience that caused, you know, that in their mind to not react in a certain way. So all that being said, that's the end of my TED Talk there, Ari. So... <laughs> 
Preaching to the choir. Yeah, good conversation there. And so now we're going to hopefully get some good feelings, but I know, you know, I asked you about your least favorite game as well. So which one do you want to start with? Your least favorite game or your favorite game that you played in? Um, Let's go least favorite. Okay, so what's the least favorite game you've played in? It could be a tournament as well. If there's if there's just one tournament in your mind that you're like, oh, I do not want to think about that tournament again. But you're going to have to bring it up here, so. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. My least favorite tournament, honestly, and again, by least favorite, I like I had so many good memories and so many good experiences at this tournament. But my least favorite tournament for myself was College Nationals 2019. It was the first time that... I was on that big stage. It was the first time that, you know, my team was on that big stage in a really long time. It was windy. It was brutal. And it was honestly the first tournament where I really, really struggled with my mental health on the field. Just really crumbled under pressure. Felt a lot of judgment for the way I was acting. And, you know, the team didn't do as well as we wanted to. We were still there. I was so happy to be there. So excited to be there with that group of people. I adored that group of people. And it was still not the most positive experience for me, for sure. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. And now uh, hopefully some good vibes coming your way with uh, your favorite game or tournament that you've played in. Okay, favorite tournament, which also has to do with the favorite game. Favorite tournament, it's so hard not to say it, but U24s. I mean, who, like, nothing compares to that. And favorite game within that was the finals game of U24s. We played Japan. And... You know, our team played solid. We had like a very consistent just energy and ability to play and whatever. And probably one, like one of the best moments of my life was I threw the winning goal of that game. I will never not remember that <laughs> and like remember it like frame by frame, like exactly what it felt like, looked like all of it. And if you if you ever if anybody ever watches that game or watches the you know the repeat of the final point you can just see me I throw it and then I crumble <laughs> like literally I just like melt to the ground and yeah I just I loved that team so much that that was one of the I mean along with slow white at points but U24s throughout the whole week the only team who has always a hundred percent of the time had my back been excited about me being there felt safe 100% of the time did I feel safe and accepted on that team. And that's a really beautiful thing with somebody, somebody with an ex, like a past that I've been through. That is a beautiful thing. Yeah, beautiful thing there. And uh, I'm just envisioning you Ari, like, at you know, 60 years old or something with your teammates from the past. And you're just like, <laughs> sitting, you know, um, let's picture it like a coffee shop, uh, or out on a park bench, and just reminiscing about this tournament, I could just see that happening. So that's something, you'll, so that's something you'll probably be doing in the future. And so now we'll move into some rapid fire questions. First question we're going to start off with, we'll start it off easy here. Your favorite throw that you prefer, flick or backhand? Flick. What about hammer or scuba? Hammer. Would you rather drop a pole or drop a catch in the end zone? You're a handler, so we'll see what you pick there. Drop a catch in the end zone. <laughs> Have you done both though in a game? Of course. <laughs> Hey, honest, I like it. What about uh, you're playing, you know, college nationals, club nationals, let's say. You have a choice of winning five silver medals in a row or just one finals appearance but with a gold medal? Honestly, I don't know how to answer that question. I think it depends on – my tendency is to say one gold medal because I think 
that team that wins that gold would walk away more proud and then keep that pride through however else we do in the years to come or the years before. Yeah. All right. What about uh, the name Ultimate? Should it be renamed to something else? I don't know. <laughs> so Some people want to change the name, so. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think so. I'll ask the last one here for Ultimate. Uh, you played on the U24 team, so should Ultimate consider continuing its place in the Olympics, like trying to pursue the Olympic game? My initial inclination is yes, but I don't, I don't know too much about it. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. All right, so already now some non-sports questions here. First one is this. I'm going to give you a chance to share a meal with three people in the course of human history. So they can be living or brought back from the dead. So yeah, you got to pick who you're going to share this meal with. Well, okay, one would be Toni Morrison. She wrote Beloved, which is my favorite book ever. She is a phenomenal author, has so many amazing, amazing thoughts and experiences and whatever. I would love to sit down with her. Honestly, I have to say Freud would be another one. As the shameless psychology student that I am, I think he was a ridiculous human being. <laughs> and I would love to pick his brain. Sigmund Freud, I like it. Yeah, would love to pick his brain. I don't know who this would be, but whoever sat down and wrote the first Ultimate Frisbee Rules book. Don't know who it is. I don't know who it is either, so that's something maybe the audience can research or something, but I have no clue. So that would be kind of interesting. It's like Dr. James Naismith with basketball. Like That would be, you know that he made the rules for basketball, so it would be kind of cool to hear from the person who created the sport. Like, why did you do it? And where, where did you see it going? That's my big question, is like, where did you see this going? Yeah, those are my three. All right, awesome. And another non-sports question here in Boston. You're going to be putting on a concert in your backyard, an Ari Nelson-inspired concert. You can pick three bands or artists in the world. They could be broken up. You know, a singer could have passed away, and you bring them back from the dead. So who are you going to pick in this concert and the order? So you got to pick the order as well. Who's going to open, be in the middle, and who's going to end it? Easy. First, Sylvan Esso. Absolutely first. Second, Glass Animals. I've been super into them recently. They would definitely go second. And third, Remy Wolf. If you don't know who she is, she's not a super well-known artist, but she has some absolute bumps. She's so freaking talented. Those are my three. I didn't even have to think about that. All right. Well, I'm going to be the first to admit that. I think this is the first time ever when someone's told me their musical choices that I don't recognize a single artist off of the list. What? I got some research to do is what you're telling me. <laughs> Truth. Truth. Truly, you do. I'm going to be able to immerse myself in some more musical choices there, as you will in the audience as well. So last question here. Can't choose ultimate for this answer. I'm going to give you all the talent in the world. You can pick another sport to play or team sport or individual sport. You know, you could be a tennis player at Wimbledon or play in the WNBA or the NBA or wherever you want to go. So what would you pick? You have all the talent. You have the talent you have now for ultimate plus more, plus unlimited talent. I'd be an Olympic sprinter. Probably in the 400. Not the 100, eh? No, I've always hated the 400 because I just like could not figure out how to pace it. But those videos of those athletes like, you know, rounding the last 100 and picking up their kick. Whew, I would love to have that feeling. Yeah, there you go. 
So Ari, we talked about a lot of stuff today, right? Boston mixing, Boston Ultimate, what's in the water over there. We talked about mental health journey and how you can be helpful, both as someone who struggles with it, but someone who is listening to those who struggle with it as well. So we covered a lot today, Ari. If someone wants to reach out to you, maybe they want to thank you for what you've said or just reach out and talk. Is there some way they can find you online? And can you also plug the website as well again? Uh, Time for the Ultimate Talk. I'll make sure to put that in there. And any games that you've done that are on YouTube, I can also put those in the show description as well. Yeah, I mean, I am on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I hate Twitter, so I'm not on Twitter. But Time for the Ultimate Talk is on Instagram and Twitter. We have a website. I can also... Theo, I'll send you my email if anybody wants to get in touch with me. But yeah, always open to talk to people. Always open to have more conversations about anything. My Instagram handle is arijade1. All right. You can uh, talk to her via there. If you're not comfortable with Instagram, email as well. I'll plug that in the show description. And that's something that you probably have noticed in this conversation is Ari's very open to talking about her story and, and engaging with yours as well. So that's always really cool to hear. And Sometimes on the podcast, we just talk strictly about Ultimate. Today was different, uh, you know, along with some other episodes, which is good because I think it allows people to understand more people in the Ultimate community. We're all diverse in different ways, not just race and gender, but experiences as well. So yeah, that's uh, good stuff. I've been encouraged today. Hopefully you have been as well. So Ari, thanks for coming in on the podcast. Virtually, of course, all the way from Boston, Massachusetts. Of course. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. Keep an eye out for the next episode where I interview Liam Grant, an Irish Ultimate player, host of the Eurozone podcast, and Ultimate commentator, who is known for coining the phrase buttery biscuit. In this interview, Liam shares about his playing career, his experience as a tournament director, his role on the WIFDIF board, and how he got into commentating. As always, you can follow me on Instagram at Juan underscore and underscore only underscore sports. And you can check out some commentating highlights on YouTube at One and Only Sports. Catch you listeners on the flip side. Peace.